Episode 6. What am I doing here? What are you doing here? My mother says. She's smiling, as if greeting me in her own home, rather than in the care home where she sits, as always, in the day room with a hundred others. Her head is bowed, as usual, and her shoulders are almost in line with her ears. But she's looking up at me, one eyebrow raised, as if to say, Gotcha! I'm taken aback, as always, when she pulls this trick. Lucid, articulate, engaged, aware, funny, even cheeky. These are qualities you forget to remember as characteristic of this woman. Because most of the time, they're just not apparent. And because most of the time before she was ill, these qualities were quashed by my father. The flashes of wit and normalcy and intimacy also make me wonder, as I have all along, if the Parkinson's diagnosis is right. Madness. Doctors know best, right? And yet, let's reflect on the idea that there are no definitive biomarkers for Parkinson's. No blood sample, no virus you can point at. Just an array of symptoms that vary from patient to patient. These moments are so precious... I always stumble and trip over myself to pack in whatever meaningful communication we can before something or someone imaginary or real distracts her, especially today. Because my promise to tell our mother the news of her husband's death is long, long overdue. When my sister was still here, we'd spoken to our mum about bringing her home several times, though without being sure she understood. But I have a new strategy. If I say that when we saw Dad in hospital... It was his last wish that she should come home and take care of the place as he had done in her absence. It might not be a true and accurate account of events, but it could serve to sweeten the bitter pill I have to administer, killing two birds with one stone, as it were. You remember I said we'd take you home soon? She smiles and is apparently listening, but she says nothing. Well, it's almost time. The day is coming very soon. Is that okay? She doesn't speak, and there's no change in her expression. Because that's what Dad wanted. And I hope that's what you want. Is it? Someone passing by catches her attention. Movement, particularly if it comes unexpectedly and takes human form, will often generate a quick response in her, and she'll follow whoever it is with an alert interest. Her dementia has left such reflexes intact, so far. Mum? I take her hand. She looks down to see what the touch is all about, and her eyes trace a line up my arm and to my shoulder, neck and face. She's back, but I'm not sure she knows me. I was saying, we're going to get you home soon. Now I have to warn you, it'll be me taking care of you. What do you think of them apples? I think maybe she was going to reply, but as her vocal cords prepared to go to work, a bit of phlegm lazing around in her throat shifted and caused a blockage. I'll find out in the months to come that dysphagia, disruption to the swallowing process, will be one of my greatest enemies. And though such a simple complaint, life-threatening to my mother. She's leaning far enough forward in the chair for me to rub her back in little circular motions that I can't imagine do anything to ease her coughing, but certainly serve to make me feel better. I tap a couple of times with the flat of my hand, the way you do when someone is choking, 
and reached for the colourless plastic cup with the winged handles sitting close by on a hospital bed table. I think it has squash in it, to judge by the colour of the liquid. It was here before I arrived. I give a futile look around for someone who might reassure me that the drink is fresh, or hers, more appropriate to the cough, but there's no one, so I go ahead and put it to her lips anyway. This is another lesson I'll learn as time goes by, that almost every decision I'll make with regard to her welfare involves risk and is often about choosing the lesser of two evils, allowing the cough to go unchecked or taking the chance on the squash. Come on, I say to myself as she raises her own hand to the cup and takes a surprisingly firm grip of one of my fingers. It's orange squash, for God's sake. It's not going to kill her. It doesn't. I put the cup down, take my mother's hand again, in a gesture even I feel is rather patronising and over the top. But I'm determined to get this out, and if holding her hand helps both of us to get through it, well, so be it. Mum, I need to talk to you about Dad. You know he was in the hospital. Where is he now? She asks unexpectedly, and I'm confounded. Come on, I say to myself, you've got her attention, answer the question. Is he still in the hospital or not? Technically, I suppose he is, insofar as his body is in the morgue, and the morgue is in the hospital. Can I lie? Can I be economical with the truth? And if I say he's in hospital, doesn't that imply he's still alive? Or should I take a run at this and explain that Dad died days ago now, and I've been told the autopsy should be complete by the end of the week, and I can begin to make the funeral arrangements if I so desire? I find myself sidestepping the question altogether. Dad was ill. You remember he was... Very ill? He couldn't be at home alone without you, and so he went to the hospital. They looked after him there. But before the end, he told me I should take you home. And that's what I'm going to do. Dad died. Happy to know that you'd be safe. Someone walking by catches her attention, and her eyes flit right. I'm waiting for a reaction that isn't going to come. I can tell the news is either not news at all, they haven't seen each other for two years or so as he gave up visiting her and then took to his bed, or that it's news that simply doesn't compute. Either way, the information has been put aside in favour of what's going on around us, and I haven't the heart to drive it home except in the weediest of words. Are you all right? Nothing. He was happy at the end, I say. A lie. I was with him. A detestable lie. And Karen, too. I am completely without honour. It just doesn't seem to matter anymore. I can say whatever I like. So I do. He loved you very much, I say. And suddenly, I wonder. Because that's the only thing I've said to her today that I don't know to be a lie. I'm going to take one of my little pauses for reflection. I'm going to say some things that you may not agree with you may even find reprehensible. But it's all too easy for us to assume that love is a state that abhors such abuses as imprisonment, torture and cruelty. But does it? 
The idea that love is a state where one person has only the best interests of the other at heart and where what is given is given freely with no expectation of reward or even recognition sounds like that oddly irritating holier-than-thou Alanis Morissette number you owe me nothing in return. The one that scans so badly it makes you wonder if words like encouragement and outright acceptance should really be in a song at all. The rather sick-making sentiment of the lyrics apparently engage a number of men, and more significantly women, who sing along quite merrily and dream of a love like that for themselves, where their partner is encouraged to sleep with whoever and has a right to be a royal pain in the arse the rest of the time. No, look, when two people come together for whatever reason, most happen to call it love, so let's assume that's what it is, and one of those people is personality type A and the other personality type B, each with radically different needs and wants, what happens? One, outgoing, the other shy and introverted, for example. Of course, a justification of any and all injustices lies in that argument, and many cling to the theoretical notion of equality, especially in politically correct circles. Though what we call love is not a delicately balanced set of shiny brass scales with two little heaps of gold dust in either saucer. More often, the trade-off is unequal, because the need is unequal. The exchange of goods is for goods of a different nature, that we'd love because of our defects as much as our attributes. In fact, there's a well-established theory of love that relies on the notion that we fall for someone, not exactly because of the differences between ourselves and the object of our affections, but because that person has qualities we seek to augment in ourselves. Qualities that are absent or underdeveloped without the presence of that particular individual. And let's face it, while some of those qualities will be positive and even laudable, others may not be so publicly acceptable. Closed doors are there for a reason. To go to the extreme, I guess you could argue that masochists and sadists might get along well together. The conspiracy between two consenting adults may lead those of us looking in from the outside to jump to conclusions and confidently judge such relationships as being unequal, unusual, unethical, undesirable, when they're nothing of the sort, at least to those engaged in the partnership. And exactly what criteria are we supposed to apply to make those judgments? Are our own preferences and moral standards enough of a measure? And how do we separate out cultural and social norms related to a particular era or a part of the world or economic imperative or any number of other factors that may be entirely foreign to us and perfectly acceptable to those in the dock of our summary judgments? One wife or two? Cheating on your impotent husband to preserve a marriage for the sake of the children or going without? Putting up with abuse for the sake of form or fighting back? Watching your spouse grow mean and alcoholic because things haven't turned out the way they should or getting a divorce? taking care of a life partner with an incurable and debilitating physical or mental condition, or getting the hell out. Which is another way of saying that for all I know, he did love her very much. My father and my mother, I mean. Even with the imprisonment, the torture and the abuse. These things may not be mutually exclusive with a kind of love, though anathema to the rest of us. She certainly loved him, despite everything. And that, for whatever reason, is plain fact.
There's a lot to do. I mean a lot. My sister and I have done a lot while she's been here, but there's more. We've hired a solicitor, filled in forms, probate is underway, and my father's little red car, the Honda with the leather seats he'd lusted after for so long but never really got to drive, is up and running. For three years or more, it sat in the garage. A couple of weeks before he died, I put the battery on charge, and because my own car is still in France, and because he was confused and couldn't write his own name, I bought the tax and arranged an MOT. It saved getting a hire car. We faced the finances too and found a black hole where there should be money to spare. If it was there, it's gone now, most of it on care. There might be some savings in a bond, but it's hard to tell. The rest of the paperwork is a mess, but I can attack it over the days and weeks to come after I bring my mother home. When my wife and I were breaking up, she said to me, and I quote, You have an inordinate need for personal freedom. Note the inordinate. The dictionary offers these synonyms by way of definition. Improper, immoderate, or excessive. At first sight, this seems like a value judgment that's not really working in my favour, especially as it clearly implies that becoming a carer for my mother might not play to my strengths. Perhaps I lack the temperament to survive a domestic lockdown. Perhaps I'll run for the hills. I've certainly done it before. Odd, then, that I've never lived alone. I say never. One time, straight after the divorce, when I satisfied my inordinate need, and I went off to a former cowshed in the Pyrenees to write the book. Yes, the same book I was rewriting in France, the same book that bankrupted me, and, well, let's not talk about it now. There's plenty of time for war stories later. What I'm saying is, I've certainly never had the opportunity to make a home alone. I know that's a sad fact in a grown man, but there it is. Three long-term relationships over 40 years with very competent homemakers, all with their own distinct sense of style and taste, was part of it. A lifetime of coupledom, or dependency, sheer laziness, whichever way you care to phrase it. I started going out with my first girlfriend at the age of 17. We were at school together, and we were still together 10 years later. My ex-wife, who incidentally I was also at school with, some kind of psychopathology, methinks, was around for the next 15, until circumstances overtook us. Then there were eight years with the girlfriend I mentioned, the one who came to visit me in France. Now don't get me wrong, I'm excited by my newfound independence. I get to choose things. You've no idea how new that is. No, I'm just saying that I'm not used to being alone. In particular, I find the evenings long and, well, tedious. My compensation, my lifeline, is the phone. I speak to one of my two daughters almost daily. I speak to Phil once a week, and I call my sister in Canada, or she calls me once a week. I usually have a bottle of wine open before I speak to anyone, as this is now my social life. I know no one in this part of the world. Those folks I do know, my ex-wife, a couple of old friends in the same town as her, are an hour and a half away from the bungalow, where I'm dialing numbers to keep loneliness at bay. I'm used to sharing the trials and tribulations of another day. I mean, all of those who live alone get colds and flu and minister to themselves, have good days and bad, 
and no one there to notice the difference. Of course, people who live alone can make phone calls, write emails and make social arrangements to mitigate isolation, and I'm learning to do just that in my new situation. But for me at least, it's not the same. The audience is not captive and the contact doesn't have the same immediacy. The stories I tell or hear on the phone are deliberately pickled or preserved in some way for later consumption. I work best live and I like my stories fresh, but I make the calls and take the calls anyway. Though after the contact, the sense of being alone is often more acute. Wine helps, but there's still often a few hours where the choice is between going to my father's bed to read or flicking on the television. Neither really calls to me, and I sometimes find myself walking from room to room with no particular purpose. In this uncomfortably comfortable bungalow, the only presence other than myself is the ghost of my father, and around me is more material legacy, the flotsam and jetsam of a long life, the cheap but cherished dark wood and green leather sofa, and matching reclining armchairs. Constable reproductions, bucolic scenes of uncertain provenance with milkmaids and Dutch windmills, cavaliers laughing heartily around open fires, pewter tankards of ale in hand. And I know this feeling of being, well, stuck, even incarcerated, just as my mother is incarcerated in the care home, is not likely to go away when we're cellmates together. She sleeps a lot, and she talks very little. There are barriers between her inner world and mine, and any kind of shared reality is brief at best and tends to come and go. I will have to learn caring skills for sure, but I can sense already that the hours of caring are likely to be less onerous than the hours of waiting to care. A lot of time will go to waste being on watch but off duty, unless I do something. A lot of time will be spent alone, unless I do whatever it is pretty damn quick. is rather obvious. But it won't occur to me until another long evening at the end of another long day. I'm going fishing. Subscribe to download the series. Just go to the website metoomama.com You'll also find photographs of people and places, together with footnotes, reflections on love, suggestions on care, and the chance to share your own stories and experiences. Thanks for listening.